0: Hello, and welcome to Business Talk, brought to you by Business West, People's Bank, and Living Local. Hi, I'm Chris Kellogg from the Kellogg Crew Morning Show on 94.7 WMAS, and I'm proud to introduce the host of Business Talk. He's editor and associate publisher of Business West. Here's George O'Brien. Okay, welcome everyone to another episode of Business Talk. Uh, We have a terrific show for you today. I really can't wait to get to it, but I will just one minute because we need to first hear this message from our sponsor, People's Bank. Thank you for listening to the Business Talk podcast, sponsored by People's Bank, bringing you the best in business experts, entrepreneurs, and evangelists. Make Business Talk your innovation break for ideas and inspiration. People's Bank, where commercial banking can fuel your growth and make work life easier. Member FDIC, DIF equal housing lender. Bank at peoples.com slash business. Okay, we are back on Business Talk. As promised, we have a a good show for you today, a, a different kind of show, actually. We're, we're speaking with Ira Helfand. Uh, he is a retired emergency room physician. I've spent years at Mercy Hospital here in Springfield. Uh, he is co-chair of the Physicians for Social Responsibility. That's the Nobel Prize-winning Physicians for Social Responsibility. And chair of the Nuclear Weapons Abolition Committee. Good morning, Ira. How are you?
1: Good morning, George. How are you today?
0: I'm fine. Glad to have you on the show. Uh, like I said, we're here to talk about something different than we normally talk about on Business Talk, and that is your work uh, with the Physicians for Social Responsibility and the Nuclear Weapons Abolition Committee. This is a work that you've been doing for years, decades, actually, but now it's more in the news and uh, more of a kind of issue that we're all talking about uh, because of what's going on in the Ukraine and, and elsewhere in the world, too. So, Uh, Can you just start by telling us a little uh, about yourself and uh, Physicians for Social Responsibility and the specific group that you chair?
1: Uh, Sure. Thank you, George. Uh, Physicians for Social Responsibility is a national organization of physicians and other health professionals and some other people who uh, are concerned about our message, which is about the medical consequences of nuclear war. We started back in 1978 with a mission of educating the public and decision-makers about the actual medical consequences of nuclear war in the hope that a better educated public and a better educated body of decision makers would make wiser decisions about uh, nuclear weapons than they than they have been making, uh, unfortunately. Um, we are part of an international uh, federation called the International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War, which has affiliates in 55 countries. Uh, and That organization, International Physicians, or IPPNW, uh, started in 2007 a global campaign called the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, uh, which did an important job along with some state governments in shepherding the adoption at the United Nations in 2017 of the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, which entered into force in January of last year.
0: As I mentioned, your your group has always been active, but uh, I imagine in the last six weeks or so, uh, it has become exponentially more active. Uh, do you want to talk about the ways yeah. that you've been uh, kind of escalating? I hate to use that term in this context, but uh, taking yeah. your work to a higher level.
1: Well, you know, for, for the last 30 years, since the end of the cold war, the biggest obstacle that we've faced in doing our work has been the fact that people thought the nuclear danger had gone away. Back in the 80s, everyone understood that nuclear war was a real threat and people were concerned about it. And they took political action to try to end the Cold War arms race, which was ultimately quite successful. But when the Cold War ended, everyone sort of assumed the danger had passed and they stopped paying attention to the issue. That has changed dramatically in the last six weeks since Putin invaded Ukraine and issued a series of very explicit nuclear threats, which were, by the way, responded to by NATO with equally inappropriate nuclear threats. And so this issue is backward, ought to have been all of this time, on the table, on the public agenda. And we have been trying to uh, use the, uh, this occasion to educate people about the danger. We're also trying to intervene somewhat in the current situation, although the ability of civil society to affect what's happening in Ukraine is very limited. The events are unfolding very rapidly, and we have very little leverage over uh, the governments that are involved. But IPPNW, along with 17 other Nobel Peace Prize uh, laureates, uh, did issue a statement uh, calling for an immediate ceasefire in Ukraine, for the withdrawal of all Russian forces from Ukraine, and for both NATO and Russia, to issue unequivocal pledges that they will not under any circumstances use nuclear weapons in this conflict, and that they will instead support the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons going forward. That statement was taken up by the Avaz platform, uh, which is a a global uh, platform for for, uh, people to express their views uh, in the form of a petition, uh, which as of uh, this past uh, Friday had over 1 million signatures and we have asked for a meeting with the United Nations Secretary General to present that petition, and hopefully we'll be able to do that within the next week or so.
0: Mm. You mentioned the Cold War. Uh, during the Cold War and, and, and even before it, uh, probably going all the way back to the early 60s and the Cuban Missile Crisis, the, the assumption among many was that you know, the world is just too smart to use nuclear weapons, uh, even though the threat is there. Uh, more countries have, have added those. I believe we're now up to nine countries that have nuclear capability. The assumption was always that uh, these weapons were never would never be used, and uh, recent events, uh, you know, would seem to indicate that that maybe that's not true anymore. Uh, do you want to well, talk about that a little bit? I don't think
1: it, it ever was true, George. You know, there there has been this myth uh, with enormous power attached to it that somehow or other nuclear weapons are so terrible that they will deter their own use. No one will ever make the mistake of using them. We know that over the the decades, that has not been true. The United States, for example, has threatened to use nuclear weapons repeatedly. In many circumstances involving countries, usually that did not have nuclear weapons, we threatened to use them against China. Uh, Twice in the 50s, before China was a nuclear power, we planned to use them in Vietnam. And Richard Nixon backed off from that plan only because he understood it would face enormous opposition here in the United States. Uh, we've explicitly threatened to use nuclear weapons during the, both Iraq wars uh, if we felt it was necessary to, to achieve victory. The Russians, for their part, have had an explicit policy as well that nuclear weapons can be used, if necessary, to gain advantage on the battlefield or to avert uh, defeat. In addition, there have been many, many occasions when we have come within minutes of nuclear war, because one side or the other received a false alert and believed that it was under attack by the other side. Um, On most of these occasions, uh, on many of these occasions, I should say, we came within minutes of all-out nuclear war because of a computer glitch or some similar technical mistake. It is not the wisdom of our leaders. It is not the soundness of our military doctrine. It is not the infallibility of our technology that has prevented nuclear war. As former Defense Secretary Robert McNamara famously said, quotes, we lucked out. It was luck that prevented nuclear war, end quote. And we have to understand that. Our current nuclear policy, maintaining these enormous arsenals in the expectation that they will never be used is nothing more than a hope for continued good luck. And this is a fairly insane basis for national security policy. We need to plan for the future based on reality, not on hopes and prayers.
0: Okay. You're listening to Business Talk, a podcast presented by Business West in partnership with Living Local and sponsored by People's Bank. We're talking with Ira Helfand. uh He is co-chair of the Physicians for Social Responsibility and chair of its Nuclear Weapons Abolition Committee. We've been talking about your efforts to, to educate people or I guess I could say maybe re-educate people about the dangers of nuclear war, nuclear weapons? How is that education process being carried out?
1: Uh, We're doing a lot of public speaking, uh, much of it by Zoom at this moment in time, but some of it uh, in person. Uh, I've been doing a lot of interviews with uh, various media outlets and um, have been doing a lot of writing. Uh, I've had op-eds and articles published in in many magazines around the country, uh, myself and others in our organization. Uh, and what we've been trying to do is to explain to people what the actual medical consequences of a nuclear war would be, because most people don't really understand how bad a nuclear war would be. Um, they have images of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which are important warnings about how destructive nuclear bombs can be. But the thing we need to mainly understand about Hiroshima and Nagasaki is that they do not begin to prepare us. For the full level of destruction that would follow a modern day nuclear war. Because if, say, the United States and Russia go to war today, it's not going to be one relatively small bomb on one or two cities, as was the case in Japan in 1945. It's going to be many bombs on many cities, many of which will be anywhere from 10 to 50 times more powerful than the bombs that destroyed Hiroshima.
0: Interesting. So, this work that you're doing, uh, these articles, these uh, talks that you're giving, uh, do you believe that they're creating momentum at this point?
1: I hope so. You know, I think at the moment, the, the key task is simply to get people again to understand that we have a problem. Uh, there has been a lot of, of uh, attention to the equally important existential threat posed by the climate crisis, but people haven't been paying attention to the nuclear danger. And I think we're starting to see that change. We need to get to the kind of level of understanding that we had back in the 1980s when people could pretty well accurately describe what the effects of nuclear war would be. I, I, I spoke at a Grand Rounds presentation at a local hospital last week, and one of the doctors, um, a very uh, bright woman with an excellent reputation, uh, but a younger woman in her 40s who, who did not live through the Cold War, um told me that you know she had thought that a nuclear war would look like Hiroshima, and when I described to her what would actually happen to a major city, she was really shocked uh, to the point of tears, and I apologized to her for upsetting her, and she said, No, th- people need to understand this. this is what they need to know so that they will take action to make sure this doesn't happen. Maybe I could describe to you briefly what it looks like if in okay. a modern day nuclear attack sure so You know, we don't know the exact targeting strategy of the United States or Russia, but uh, people who I've spoken to feel that it's a a reasonably safe assumption that a major city like, say, Boston or New York would be targeted with anywhere from 10 to 15 weapons, each of which, as I mentioned, would be uh, anywhere from 10 to 50 times more powerful than the Hiroshima bomb. We describe the destruction that would cause by using the model of a single very large nuclear explosion, uh, which... Uh, very closely approximate the damage that 10 or 15 smaller bombs would cause. Within a thousandth of a second, a fireball would form reaching out for two miles in every direction, four miles across. Within this entire area, everything would be vaporized. The buildings, the trees, the people, the upper level of the earth itself would disappear to a distance of four miles in every direction the explosion would generate winds greater than 600 miles per hour. Mechanical forces of that nature destroy anything that human beings can build. To a distance of six miles in every direction, the heat would be so intense that automobiles would melt. And to a distance of 16 miles in every direction, the heat would still be so intense that everything flammable would burn. Paper, cloth, wood, gasoline, heating oil, plastic, it would all ignite. Hundreds of thousands of fires, which over the next half hour would coalesce into a giant firestorm 32 miles across, covering over 800 square miles. Within this entire area, the temperature would rise to 1400 degrees Fahrenheit. All of the oxygen would be consumed, and every living thing would die. In the case of Boston, we're talking about 3 to 5 million people, depending on the time of day. In the case of New York, 12 to 15 million people. Mm -hmm. And if we have a major war with Russia, that's what's going to happen to every major city in both countries. Mm -hmm. In in addition, the entire economic infrastructure of the country will be destroyed. We would see perhaps 200 to 400 million people dead on the first afternoon. But those who survived Would be living in an environment with no electric grid, no public health system, no internet, no food distribution system, none of the things that we require to keep ourselves alive. And over the months following that initial attack, most of the survivors would also die in the United States and in Russia. But final point, these are just the direct effects. There's also a huge impact on climate, A war between the United States and Russia puts millions of tons, about 150 million tons of soot into the upper atmosphere, blocking out the sun and dropping temperatures across the planet, an average of 18 degrees Fahrenheit, which is much colder than the coldest moment of the last ice age. In the interior regions of North America and Eurasia, temperatures would drop 45 to 50 degrees Fahrenheit. For three years there wouldn't be a single day without frost. That is, the temperature would drop below freezing at least some part of every single day. And under those conditions, the ecosystems that have evolved since the last ice age would collapse. Food production would stop. The vast majority of the human race would starve to death, and it is possible we would become extinct as a species. Now, this is the danger that we face every day that we allow these weapons to continue to exist. And it's a danger which has gotten dramatically worse with the fighting in Ukraine.
0: Okay, you mentioned earlier that, that what's going on in Ukraine uh, is largely beyond our control. What What is within our control, meaning not just people in this country, but people in other countries uh, in terms of eliminating these weapons and, and keeping them from ever being used?
1: Well, if we are lucky enough, George, to survive the next few weeks without a nuclear war, We have to make sure that we are never again in a position of this vulnerability again. Uh, We need to build a movement that demands that the nine countries which hold nuclear weapons stop holding humanity hostage in this way. Here in the United States, we've launched something called the Back from the Brink campaign. Uh, It is modeled on the freeze campaign of the 1980s, which successfully brought about the end of the Cold War arms race except this time the goal is to get rid of the weapons weapons altogether. We are organizing around a simple platform, a simple statement of what U.S. nuclear policy ought to be, the key part of which is a call for the United States to begin now to negotiate with the other eight nuclear-armed countries for a verifiable, enforceable, mutual timetable to eliminate their nuclear weapons. This is not unilateral disarmament. This is a call for the United States to Lead the negotiations, but to achieve universal disarmament. And we've brought this resolu- resolutions embodying this platform to cities and towns across the country, to civic organizations, to faith communities, to professional associations. And so far, uh, some sixty or sixty municipalities around the country, including seventeen here in Massachusetts, have signed the statement. Uh, Springfield, Worcester, Boston, among them, also East Hampton and, and Northampton. Six state legislatures have passed resolutions supporting this. 320 local elected officials have endorsed it. And over 400 civil society organizations have as well. And we are rapidly building this campaign and hope to be able through this vehicle to create a national consensus that we need to have a fundamentally different nuclear policy. One that recognizes that nuclear weapons do not make us safe, but rather that they are the greatest threat to our security.
0: And as I asked earlier, do you, do you believe we're building momentum in that direction? I, I know we still have a, a lot of hill to climb there.
1: But, uh. I do. I think that the current uh, war in Ukraine is, is putting this issue before people again in a way that will lead to a good outcome. I think there are a couple of narratives that will flow forth from this. Uh, the, those who build nuclear weapons will argue that we need to have more of them, and that's that, that argument is going to get some traction. They're going to say, look, the Russians are really bad. We need to be even stronger, as if the 6,000 nuclear warheads we already have isn't enough to do whatever one could possibly want to do with them. But there'll be another narrative as well. People, as happened after the Cuban Missile Crisis, when both Kennedy and Khrushchev recoiled in horror from what they had almost done, I think people around the world are going to look at this moment and say, you know, this was a worldwide near death experience. We cannot keep rolling the dice and hoping that we're going to be lucky every time. We have to get rid of the weapons. And so if if there's to be any good that comes out of this terrible disaster in Ukraine, perhaps it will be uh, an increased understanding around the world of the need to eliminate nuclear weapons, which will lead to effective political action to achieve that.
0: Okay. Well, like you said, if there's any good to come out of this, maybe that will be the good. So anyway... Well, thank you for coming on Business Talk. We appreciated having you on and good luck with your work. Thanks very much,
1: George. Okay. Have a good day.
0: Okay. Thank you to all of you for listening. This has been another episode of Business Talk, a podcast presented by Business West in partnership with Living Local and sponsored by People's Bank. I'm George O'Brien, the editor of Business West. We'll see you next time.